Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gateway, brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business, where your future is without boundaries and our approach is too. I am joined today with my incredible co-host, Dr. Biagio Palese. Hey, Biagio. Ciao a tutti. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to this great episode. Thanks for being here, Biagio. Now, today's episode, Sin City, How a Tech Startup Changed Hospitality in Las Vegas, we will examine the analytics of pleasure and how technology is allowing hotels and casinos to provide custom experiences for every visitor. And to guide us through this innovation, we have the renowned and fascinating Marco Benvenuti. Marco is the co-founder of Duetto, where he shepherded partnerships with approximately 2,000 hotels and casinos around the world. Marco's innovative thinking has cultivated novel and unique patented inventions, which became the foundation for Duetto's revolutionary revenue strategy application. Marco also serves on the Board of Pillsbury Institute for Hospitality Entrepreneurship at Cornell's School of Hotel Administration, where he holds a Master's of Management in Hospitality. Marco, welcome to the Gateway, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, so I, I want to jump right in, as always, and I kind of want to begin this conversation uh, right at the beginning. Where did all of this stuff come from? Where where did you start to think about hotel management, casinos, hospitality, all of that stuff? And and how did you get to mixing technology in with that? Yeah, um, first we should have probably updated on the bio, but Duetto now has about four thousand hotels. That is a that is a few uh, that is a few year old. Yeah, well, that's uh, awesome. Know, growth happens, which is which is good for a tech company. Um, so I, um, I basically dedicated my entire career to, to hospitality. And um, so I went to UNLV for my undergrad. Um, and then I, uh, I went to Cornell for grad school. And, um, you know, I didn't really know at the beginning what I wanted to do in hospitality. I kind of bumped into like a hospitality degree without really having an idea of like, I want to run a hotel, I want to run a restaurant, you know. Um, and, um, and so this was the early 2000s and, um, I kind of stumbled in this new discipline that was, uh, was starting in the, in the space, which was back then called yield management. Then it became revenue management. Then we called it revenue strategy, but basically it was the idea that, um, if you change pricing, you make more money, um, you know, um, now Biagio probably is too, too young to remember, but when I was, uh, but probably like where, where he's from, hotels still do that. When I when I was young and I would go skiing on, in the winter, the hotels always had the same price. Basically, hotels had two prices: they had a, a summer price and a winter price, and it was what it was. Like you know, the, it was printed on a brochure, and there was no no changing it. Um, and even in the U.S. until really like the late 90s, there was not really um, much movement in, in the way the way we were doing pricing. The, the Internet was was coming in. Hotels, of course, were a little bit behind compared to everything else. Uh, the online travel agents started 
it started happening like Expedia and Booking.com and all that. And that created this revolution where everybody was like, well, we need to start playing with pricing and make more money. So I kind of happened to be at the right time in the right place because uh, all this and, and all this changing pricing was happening in the industry. I was like, okay, this sounds like kind of fun, like something that I kind of I want to do. Um, and so I, especially at Cornell in my master, I specialized in, um, in this discipline of revenue management. Um, and then, you know, like you come out of school and you have all these high hopes and you think that the industry is, you know, doing this and that because you're reading all these case studies and you have all the speakers and then you go in the industry. Um, and um, I, I know I, I actually worked one year at the Four Seasons in Chicago. Then I moved back to Vegas. I, I started, I worked for Caesars and then I worked for Wynn. Um, and I was expecting all sorts of technology to be there you know, to, to, to help facilitate this like price changes and complex analytics. And, and instead I found myself uh, with Excel. And uh, I was like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. No, the good news was that I was really, really good with Excel. Um, and so I started basically rebuilding all these spreadsheets in these companies to make it more dynamic and help them with the, with the pricing, but there was really no good technology. There was some technology out there, but it was really, it was really not good. Um, and, um, and especially then when I was at Wynn, um, you know, um, Wynn has two towers. There is, for, for those that be to Vegas, there is Wynn Las Vegas, and then there's Encore. Encore opened um, in 2008. Um, I actually opened that, that tower. Um, and, and just to give an idea of how backwards was the company, and again, this is 2008, not like 1978. All the reservation coming in um, from Expedia and all those guys were coming via fax. Um, and so I had the question asked of, okay, we're opening Encore. How many more fax machines do we have to buy? Wow. <laughs> you know, so again, this tells you, uh, yeah, fax machines in 2008. <laughs> uh, and so I stayed there for another couple of years. I got rid of the fax machine. I installed, you know, all the systems that I could, which was like a channel manager and all that. And, um, and then um, one day with, with this guy that was working with me, we said, why are we doing this? Like, why are we working like 14 hours a day with a megalomania kind of a boss, which was when, um, uh, you know, we have to wear a student tie every day. We're like, let's go do consulting. Because I think that we can do consulting and we can help other casinos and hotels to um, modernize their technology stack and all that. And so that's what we did. We quit um, and, um, and we started basically this consulting company. We went around and we started um, getting clients and helping them. Um, and so by doing that, we actually really got to see all the technology that was available because we had to basically do that analysis for them. And we were like, well, this sucks because everything, everything really sucks. And so they... Um, in, in the meantime, I was building all these spreadsheets basically to supplement what the technology was missing as, you know, as part of the consulting. So we were really selling a 
consulting package with my spreadsheets. Um, and then um, one day we said, well, why don't we turn the spreadsheets into a software? Um, because, you know, clearly all the softwares are not doing what they're, what they're supposed to. And so we, um, uh, my business partner went to Harvard. Uh, he had a bunch of VC connections. So we did the San Francisco VC thing. Uh, we met a bunch of VCs. They said, well, you guys need a coder. We found the CTO encoder. Long story short, uh, two years into this, so the consulting company started in 2010. And by the beginning of um, 2012, um, we transitioned to Duetto as a, as a tech company where basically we took my spreadsheet and piece by piece, we kind of moved it into a cloud, uh, a cloud-based solution. And then, you know, from there, of course, the company grew um, at tremendous speed. And now, the, you know, we are, we are where we are. But that's kind of how the story happened. It's not like, um, it's not like um, it was my idea early on, like I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to do a tech company. You know, like we kind of, we kind of, we kind of um, stumbled into it. Sometimes the, the best ideas uh, present themselves with that stuff. Um, when you were talking about doing the, the VCs and meeting with all of those, what was that experience like? I, I feel like movies portray it as one thing when you're going and meeting with the, these things, but I think the reality might be a little bit different. And I know- Oh, no, no, it's like in the movies. It's, uh, <laughs> okay, that's awesome. <laughs> I compare it to a big popularity context in high school. Perfect where you have the popular girls table and the cool kids and, you know, and all that. And uh, the reason why we were able to raise is because our CTO, so our CTO came from Salesforce. It was, it was a juggernaut in Silicon Valley, well-known. It was a superstar CTO. Um, he did ask us to give him half of the company. So we have to give, basically give 50% of the company to this guy. But once we had him on board, uh, VCs were lining up to throw money at us. So it was really not a painful or long process for us because we, we made that choice. Without him, it would have been a much harder because we were unknown in, in Silicon Valley. But uh, yeah, it, it's clearly a popularity context there. And once you have the right people on board, plus you know the right, like, everything kind of came together because we had this guy that would validate the technology side. We had a good idea on the business side. Um, and so we raised actually very, very, very quickly. Um, I forgot the first round was probably like two or three million, which for a, wow. for you know on a spreadsheet for a seed round, it's a lot. Uh, this was not a garage like, hey, we build it in my garage. You know, like we started right away. We were able to hire people and just have an office and kind of go, um, which of course helped a lot. Um, but yeah, it was um, there wasn't a lot of uh, analytics or anything like that behind the decision of the VCs, they were kind of like, oh yeah, you guys have him, the idea is cool, like here's money, you know, it's kind of like that. <laughs> so then well, within that, that has to be really interesting when you're, you, all of a sudden you have a paycheck of two, three, $3 million to invest in it, to, to use it wisely. How did you prioritize what, what to do first or, or were there any growing pains or, or things that you kind of look back on and say, man, I wish we would have done it that way? No, I think the first money we spent it very wisely. Later on, I think we made mistakes like everybody does, but the first money we spent it very wisely, which was basically to spend it all in R&D. 
because basically for any company that wants to do pricing, whether you want to do it in hotels, you want to do it in restaurants, you want to do show tickets, you want to do arenas, you want to do whatever you want, um, you have to... Um, you have to deal with this thing called the property management system or the, or the POS, the, 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 the operation system. You basically have to deal with the cash register. Um, and, you know, in private meetings, I used to call this cash register, the dumb boxes. I can never call them that in front of the vendor because I would create, what do you mean? I think it's a, it's a, it's a dumb box. Um, and unfortunately all these dumb boxes don't have, open APIs and you know, like they're very antiquated because you're talking about the hospitality industry. And so basically you spend the first couple of years just convincing this company to connect and building the connectivity and collecting data. So the, you would have the application ready, but you cannot really sell it or have it going because you need this like, you need to connect to these antiquated uh, systems. and. To give you an idea, um, the number one property management system used in Las Vegas is called LMS, which is owned by Agilisys. And again, now it's 2022. <laughs> it's built on an AS400. I don't know if you guys are familiar. And it has a green screen. Wow. So today, when you go and you check in, in more than half of the Vegas hotels, there is a person on the other side that deals with the green screen and F keys and stuff like that. So you can imagine when you have Silicon Valley caliber type of engineers that you have to be like, this is what you're going to interface with, have fun. You know, <laughs> that, is, uh, that is something. And so the, the first money, I think we spend it wisely by basically just focusing on this because without, without these connectivities, you would, not have a, you would not have a business. And also that allowed um, for, um, you know, protection of our competitive advantage because again, other people they're like, oh, let's build Dueto too. I was like, yeah, have fun. Let me know. <laughs> uh, you know, you basically create this barrier around you with all these connectivities because they're so hard to get and so hard to do. But then not everybody else can just come in and 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 copy you. Uh, Marco, I I mean, first of all, the the way you run. You tell the story, it seems like, oh, this happened and this happened. And it's almost like it's easy. And and the thing I like is you, you try not to, like, that's not, that wasn't your dream. You you were trying to go as a professional and then you found a problem and you see that there was a lack of technology at the time. And you came up with a, a can I say, fairly simple idea of using spreadsheet? It wasn't like too advanced, right? Of course but, not. Of course not. Yeah. But the question I do have is like, and now you make a lot of example, like they were using like fax machine in 2008 and this kind of uh, like a terminal in 2022. Can I ask you, why would it be the reason that the hospitality industry is so much behind when it comes to implementing technology? What, what is, according to you, that they kind of prevent them to uh, remodernize the whole uh, infrastructure? You know, this is a... Uh... It's a long answer, but yeah. one answer that I used to give people was like, well, it's a bunch of idiots. What can you do, right? <laughs> um, but the, the truth of the matter is that the, the you know, like I actually thought about this long and hard on why the hospitality industry is still behind. And, you know, you can see it every day. You can see it now with the pandemic, like every time, like just getting to like a mobile check-in, which 
again, in 2022, it should be like a no-brainer. Like it's like pulling teeth, right? And it's because um, the the DNA of the hospitality industry it, it's uh, it's real estate. This is a real estate uh, play. People that invest in hotels are real estate people. They're very smart real estate people, but they're real estate people. They don't know anything about technology. They don't even know much. Some of them know a little bit about hospitality. And so then they partner with people that know about hospitality and they know about serving the guests and making the guests happy and delivering the experience. But again, the technology people are nowhere to be found in this. And actually then it creates this, um, this culture where you're kind of a technophobe in the end. Like if you go and meet people that run hotel and have been running hotel for a long time, like these are technophobes. And so because of that, they're bad buyers. And so the big companies, the big tech companies has always like done their research in the hospitality vertical um, and, and, and they kind of shy away from, from the vertical. Like for example, take Salesforce. They don't do much with hospitality compared to like what they do with retail and financial services and healthcare and blah, 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 you know, like, and so this, this big, I mean, they, they always figure it out. And so it's, uh, it's always been very hard to raise money in, in hospitality tech. Um, and it's been very hard to be successful. In fact, there is a long stories of a lot of companies that make it to like a few million dollars in ARR and then they never reach escape velocity because, um, you know, it's tough. And even for Duetto, like, you know, a lot of VCs in the end were disappointed because we never got the hockey stick growth. I mean, we had nice growth and low churn and all that. But, um, you know, if you think about the money that we made for these hotels, like a lot of VCs were scratching their head, like, why are they not coming to, like, you should not even be selling to them. Why are they not coming to you and demanding this? this? And instead, every time that you want to do um, an implementation, it's like pulling teeth. And so it's just, it's just the type of industry that it is. And this is why in the end, um, the OTAs uh, made a lot of money because they basically prey on the unsophistication of the, of the hotel industry. Airbnb, it's another example. Like you have all of this that keep preying on the unsophistication. And so my point is like, at some point, either the hotel industry wakes up and they change things or they're gonna get uh, destroyed by something or somebody, like it's just gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's like, okay, technology brings disruption and, you know, you have to account for how the people will interact with it. But same things with Amazon in the retailing, right? And as you said, like Airbnb is a software company that jumps yep. in, they use other people's houses. So yep. it's very interesting. It's, it's actually like pretty much cultural and DNA of the people that kind of are in the position to say, this is the right technology. And it makes me think because... Um, you know, me and Marco share a kind of mentor. So he, we had the same professor uh, and he always told me like, you know, I was trying to provide a couple of projects to this hotel and implement some AI stuff. And he, he got the answer from one of these owners say, oh, I, I even just struggled to let people say, you know, welcome to the Hilton and, and basic stuff like that. So it's, it's actually quite interesting to me. I mean, look, when, when we started doing it, we were the first true cloud-based application. And our competitors 
were attacking us by saying, you don't want your data in the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. What are you doing? You want your server under your desk, right? You, you don't want to go with these guys. Like, who the hell knows what, you know? And hotels were like, oh no, yeah, you're right. You know, like, and, and all these hotels were like, yeah, you're cool. And you see, but like, we, it's our data. And oh my God, the cloud, like what's going to happen? And, you know, then the Venetian would have a humongous data breach because they would have their server in their basement. And I would be like, oh, how's, how's that? Are you going to move to the cloud? <laughs> like, you know, anyway, it's, uh, yeah. Um, again, it's very telling, but because again, the people at the top, of all this, um, of all these organizations, they're all real estate people in the end. I mean, even in Vegas, like the, the Sheldon, the Wayne, like all these guys that build Vegas, they're real estate people. And so they know that really, really, really well. They know how to build amazing properties. They know how to deliver an amazing experience, but they're just not people that understand technology or technology trends. Like, like try now to go into, the, like talk to the CEOs of all the major hotel company right now, try to talk about blockchain or NFTs or anything like that. See what you get. Like, you know, this is not, this is not their, their, their thing. So then Marco, do you think in, in the next couple of years or, or even 10 years that you're going to see kind of a large shift with, technology in Vegas specifically. And, and I want to bring in one of our, our, our listeners commented and said, like, do you, is there a demand for people working in IT and technology in Las Vegas? Or is it pretty much because of this technophobia, it's kind of a lost market for, for those people that might be coming up? So Vegas is a little bit different than the rest of the world because you have this thing called the casino. Um, and this is why I like to divide the hotel side and the casino side. So I win on the hotel side, you had fax machines. Okay. On the casino side, you had the first surveillance camera that could basically count the cards and spot if somebody at blackjack was a card counter or cheating. Wow. And so on the casino side, they're far more open with breakthrough technology because um, you know the people that run the casinos out of the house are not real estate people. And they understand that um, as everything becomes more complex with like slot machine, you know, like they, they're more innovative, they're more innovative by nature. And so the casino side have humongous IT departments that have to support all that. Um, and especially, you know, like, and again, even there, um, you know, the cloud gets complicated in casinos because you have gaming control boards and regulation. So for example, in Vegas, we have, I think is the biggest data center on the planet called Switch, um, which is basically like the most, like, I mean, if you, if you drive by it, it you look, it looks like you're driving by a fortress. And I think it's like the most secure place ever to, 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 you know, to, to go. Uh, and to keep their data because they cannot keep their data in the cloud. But like, again, to give you an idea, when I was at Wynn, all our servers were in a mezzanine in, a, in server rooms inside the Wynn. Pretty cool. Like, you know, we had like, we had this like glass and you could see all these lights. You know, it was, it was pretty well built. Well, when they build the hotels, the right hand didn't talk to the left hand and they forgot that they ran water pipes 
on top of this water, of this, of this tank. No harm, no foul. Well, one day, one of those pipes burst. You can imagine, right? So at least they moved away now from that. And so now all the servers are basically at the switch facility and then they have their own um, private networks, whatever to connect. And, you know, Vegas is actually very well cable. We, we have fiber, we're like, you know, um, and all that. But, and so the casino side is a little, it's a little bit better than, than the hotel side, uh, the hotel side itself. But when you go to regular hotels, like not hotel casinos, like, yeah, you're like, well, yeah, AI what? Like, I'm still trying to get the person to say welcome to the Hilton or whatever. Is there, is there some, uh, some benefits to working in Las Vegas as someone who, who spent some significant time there? I think most people that don't live there treat it as it's a destination. You, you spend a weekend, you spend a week, and then you leave. Is there, is it a, a cool place to work or are there, there drawbacks to it? I mean, like you said, it, it's a, a very unique environment compared to pretty I much mean, anywhere else in the world. Vegas now, it's a $3 million, it's a three million people city between Vegas and Henderson. So it's not a small, uh, I mean, we have pro sports, right. um, <laughs> which we didn't have before, but now we do. So, I mean, it's a real city. Like, I never go to the Strip unless there is a reason for it. Um, and, you know, like every, like, you know, it's very similar in this to like Phoenix or other, mm-hmm. you know, cities in the, in the desert. Um, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people from California are moving here. In fact, the housing market here right now, it's on fire. Um, it's because the law, like there is no state tax. So, you, you know, your income is, there is a lot of jobs because, you know, there is the casinos, but then there is everything else. Um, and, um, you know, the city in the end is still manageable and livable because traffic is not, a, you know, like park, like, you know, all of these like things that I call friction, like, you know, um, when you come from Italy, you're very used to the friction. Because everything is friction when you're in it. And so coming from Italy, like I didn't want to move to like New York City and have more friction or Philadelphia or anything like that. Vegas is definitely a low friction uh, place because everything is open 24-7. You can drive everywhere. You can park everywhere. You know, everything is easy. And, and especially now with all these like delivery apps and, and, and all that, um, you know, it becomes even more, um, even more accessible. So, you know, some people like it, some people don't, some people hate the heat in the summer, which in the end is only a couple of months. In the end, you don't get the snow in the wind, you know, like it's, it's, it's one of those things. Um, but yeah, this is why the, the city is seeing a big demographic burst uh, with a lot of people uh, moving, especially from California. Now, the water is a problem and they'll have to figure, like that's, that's all the Southwest that's this problem with water. I think they'll figure there is enough water in the United States that they'll figure it out, but there, there, there will be at some point, some big infrastructure they'll have, they'll have to be built to, to figure that one out. So then as a, as a city and, and area based in, 
in tourism, one of our, our listeners chimed in and, and asked the question, do you think the tourism actually increases the cost of, of living and functioning in Las Vegas, or do you think it's, it's relatively normal? It, 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 it didn't used to, but now you have tourism plus others, and so now it's kind of the perfect storm. Um, yeah. Now, on the, on the pro sport side, because of the tourism, tickets are extremely expensive. Uh, for example, you want to go to a hockey game and you pay prices that you probably pay in Toronto, which you don't pay when you go to a game in Chicago or you don't pay mm-hmm. when you go to a game in Phoenix or, you know, like, or, 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 you know, or to San Jose or anything like that. Um, the same thing happened when the Raiders came here. They did this like personal seat license and they sold for like, I think stuff in the lower bowl is like, Thirty to fifty thousand dollars a seat to just get wow. the you know because you had all the casinos and the demand of the tourism kind of coming in so yes there are definitely some things that um, make that expensive but on the on the contrary for example if you stay out of the strip Vegas has a very dynamic food and beverage um, you know industry and uh, prices are extremely affordable much lower than if you go New York or Miami or, or anything like that. So now if you go on the strip, you pay those higher prices. But if you stay away, there is, there is amazing restaurants with any sort of cuisine and it's very and it's very affordable. So it's a little bit of give and take. Um, housing until a few years ago was affordable and now is really creeping up both rents and, um, and purchasing. But again, compared to Southern California, it's still very cheap. So it's all relative, right? And we need to thank you uh, because of the pricing. Now it's dynamic because of Dueto. Otherwise, there would have been one price on the summer, one price on the winter. That is correct. The problem is that these guys, um, sometimes they forget that pricing can go both ways. Yeah. You know, um, and sometimes they make mistakes and they get a little ahead of... uh, of what they, you know, they get a little bit ahead of what they want to do. So then they have to recalibrate um, with all this. But, um, but yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been following very carefully the pro sports market as far as ticketing, because I think that, I mean, it's just an environment. I mean, besides that, I go to a lot of games, like it's an environment that I think that is um, uh, appetite for disruption there. Um you know, and you still have scalpers making money versus the team. And then now the teams are trying to do stuff and sometimes they make a mistake. And all of the sudden you find like 20 minutes before a game started, like a seat for $20, which shouldn't have happened. Then you piss off the season ticket hold. Like, you know, so it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating to, to, to see, to see all of this at play. So that, that's really a perfect segue. Uh, I, when I was, kind of preparing for this interview with you, Marco, I was looking at Duetto and, and some of the stuff out there. And one of the most fascinating uh, videos that, that they had out there was talking about regrets and denials um, and, and that, that kind of concept of, of how sometimes companies turn customers down without even being aware of that stuff. I had personally never even thought of that when I go to try and book a hotel room. If it's not available, I'm basically being denied by that that organization in that moment. 
is that something that you see really shifting in it across a lot of industries or or is it still going to be something really kind of hooked on within hospitality well the problem is that most people don't even track the regrets and denials in hospitality and in other industry because as you don't think about it they they don't think about either um there um I forget the example, but there was the example during World War One or World War II about this engineer, the statistician and engineers that was looking at planes. Um, and um, they were basically like, well, if the planes, like if, if the planes that come back have all the bullets in a certain point, that's what we should reinforce. And then they weren't thinking about the planes that actually didn't come back and why, you know, like, and, and so they were actually like, you know, instead of reinforcing uh, whatever they're seeing, they, they had to reinforce the engines because that's what's blowing up. And so it's kind of the same thing is what you don't see that, um, that, that that actually has, as far as data collection for any AI or machine learning or whatever you want to call it algorithm that actually that actually makes sense. Um, and so more, more and more people now are realizing that they need this like lost business lost business data wherever they go. But again, if we go into the sports arena um, uh, type of business, they, they don't collect it there. I mean, in the end, um, if you talk to any owners, they care that they, uh, they sell out the arena for the game, but they don't really look at it like, well, could have we run it maybe a 90% with more or, are we, you know, and then there is the, the whole experience side of things like, okay, so you, you, you sold the arena, but how many opponent fans are in the arena? Are you giving a bad, you know, there is just so many dynamics at play in play that they don't necessarily look at everything because again, they don't have the data and the technology around it yet to, to, to look at all that. It's still a pretty manual process in the end. Wow. So innovation is going to continue, I guess, Marco. That's where we're coming from there. I'm actually a point on, uh, like, you know, the, the experience side, because when it comes to, you know, sports and uh, I have the example of, for example, Disney, which does a lot of, you know, AI to kind of understand the people emotion during the park team, because the experience is everything for them. So do you see... You know, this type of application in, for example, casinos or sports arena in the near future, or do you see more like um, they, they're still going to be reluctant to run something? What, um, what are you talking about? You're talking about like the passes on the... Yeah, they, 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 have, the, they have the Disney, um, I forgot what is the name, but it's basically a bracelet that kind of gives you information about what is the line, how long is the line, we should go there and that. But they also have like in the theater, like face recognition software, they can check if people like, like the, if, uh, like the, you know, the, the, um, the people on the stage or not, they like the, uh, the movie or not, all this kind of stuff. And they kind of combine, they really, they truly uh, try to embrace the, you know, the big data, the AI kind of, um, you know, the technology side to enhance the amusement for the people. But I was wondering if you see something like that trending in, in other, other places. No, so for example, in Vegas, they, they're really careful and not putting bracelets or, or tags on people um, for, a lot, for a lot of different reasons. Because again, you're dealing with gambling and there is a lot of like privacy perceived or not issues, but um, the whole like, so where they invest the most is on uh, facial recognition, like all these cameras 
that are able to like thermal cameras, facial recognition, um, cameras that can track your chips with RFID, uh, that can see the cars and, you know, like all these things to basically make the experience seamless and smoother and safer, but also safer for the casino where they don't have any, any spillage or any, or any problem. Um, and that, that, that is what I see more that they're investing. What, what I'll be very interested now, it's um, with the metaverse coming, what, what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are we, are we going to be in a, like, you know, again, like we think about the metaverse now and we think about putting goggles on and looking stupid and doing this, right? But at some point in the next few years, it's going to be like you wearing your glasses and it's probably going to be more of an augmented reality type of things. And so I think that that's going to open up a lot of possibilities for the, for the entertainment industry, just that we're not, um, we're not there yet technology-wise, but I think we'll be there pretty soon. So that I think is going to be far more appealing than, um, than what Disney, for example, is doing now. Mm -hmm. uh, Marco, you, you alluded without maybe even intending to, but you kind of discussed the, the sense of gambling and, and, and some of the, the I don't know, stereotypes associated with that stuff. As someone working in that industry on, on primarily the hotel side of things, but directly associated within casinos, did you have any ethical dilemmas with that? Did you, that has to be, at least for me, I, I would have some times where I would see people or individuals that clearly were making poor decisions based on, on maybe some addictions or something like that and being a part of that, did you ever have to confront that? Or, or were you able to just kind of move on past it and say, this is my job and people are gonna make the decisions they make? Uh, no, I mean, look here, actually, they do a pretty good job in Vegas. Um, they have this, uh, I mean, again, the gaming control board, um, it's, uh, it's a pretty controlling organism in Vegas right now. There is politics that going on there and some people get favors and other they don't, you know, like everything. But, um, you know, the, the, there is a reason why Vegas is what it is because there are very strict regulations. Um, and, um, you know, this is not the far west of Vegas of like 30, 40 years ago. Um, <laughs> there is actually safeguards in place uh, cool. both on drinking. Now, you know, we have, uh, we have marijuana that is legal. So there's that, uh, on gambling, like, now that said, some people still ruin themselves. Um, uh, yeah. and there is not much you can do, but, um, you know, there is a lot of steps, uh, because also the, the casinos doesn't want people to ruin themselves because they want, like the, the way that the casino makes money is not on one trip. They want you to be a life, like, so if you're talking about addiction, they want you to be a lifetime addict, not like a three months addict, right? Because <laughs> where they, where they make money is on the repeat uh, and on the lifetime value. In fact, um, casinos track this, this metric called um, theoretical win, which is a theoretical loss of the customers, the theoretical win of the casino. So every time you go in a casino, you have associated with you a theoretical win the theoretical win depends on your betting pattern, uh, how much you bet, how frequent you bet, what, you, what games you bet on, because different games have different um, um, all, all that. But also it counts your repeats, like how many times you visit, how frequent you visit. 
Uh, because again, you know, it's basic statistics. The, we know that the casino has the advantage. Like gambling in a casino is stupid. Like if you are a statistician, you're like, okay, well, I mean, if it entertains you, great. But like, don't come and tell me like, oh, I have a system. I'm going to beat the roulette table. No, <laughs> the, the, the house has the advantage. So the, the more time you spend gambling, the more the law of averages and big numbers is going to come into play and the more the casino is going to win. So you're, you're, it's much uh, more probable that you can rob the casino of making one big bet, winning and going away, which is exactly what the casino doesn't want you to do, than gambling mm -hmm. for like, 200 days because in the end things are going to average uh things are going to average out unless so, um um and so that's what happened with um and so it, it's also in the interest of the casino of creating responsible gamblers mm. that can be there for their entire life cycle not just for you know burning their fortune in a month or whatever it is yeah so as other gambling cities or, or cities kind of uh, tapping into the same, I guess, desires of what Las Vegas is, do you, do you think that's going to impact Vegas or do you think they're, they're pretty much kind of immune from, from competition of, of other locations around the world that, that are kind of filling that same need? I mean, that has been a long, I mean, like before there were like the Indian tribes and all these regional casinos. And then guess what? Vegas made more money. Then Macau open. Oh my God, they're gonna in Vegas make more money. So in the end, um, you're just making um, you're just making the pie bigger because you are involving more and more people in the gambling business than you're basically like making more people uh, associated like gamble than than um, than without. And so the the the, the story there is that. Yes, I mean, Macau, for example, now makes more money than Vegas, which is great, but Vegas make more money than Vegas a few years ago. And mm. so, you know, like, again, the pie, the pie grows and, and, and it's kind of good for, and then now you have all the sports betting that is happening everywhere. Um, and so that is kind of, that is kind of going. So then what's with, with your knowledge, your experience, your wisdom, what's a, from a technology perspective for, Let's, let's kind of focus on the hospitality, not exactly the, the casino side of stuff. What's an, a need that that industry, whether it's in Vegas or, or elsewhere, that, that you could kind of identify as something that's still lacking behind? Um, I mean, um, Vegas is now trying to diversify their economy with tech startups, which is hard um, because, again, the, the engineering, like, you know, every time you want to do startups, you need engineers and the engineers are in Silicon Valley, they're in Austin, somebody in Atlanta. And so it's, uh, they're trying to attract that type of talent. Um, but definitely, the, you know, the, there is a need, there is a need for that. And, 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 you know, you have all the conditions, the right condition here in place to, to do that. Um, but also like, for example, if you look at Northern Nevada, for example, in Reno, they've become the logistic capital of the United States where, you know, because now Tesla and Amazon and all that go there um, because they moved away from San Francisco where it was too expensive. 
and they do a bunch of stuff there. And we're seeing that also happening in, you know, in Vegas as well. So, but this is also happening in Texas and happening in Florida and happening in all these other states with, with low taxation. So um, Vegas is just getting the benefit of that. Um, it just, you know, as usual, when, when, when places grow very quickly, there is problems that come with that. So we have to see how the whole thing is gonna be managed by the local politicians here. Well, then, then as you're talking about like tech startups within Vegas and all that stuff, you already mentioned NFTs. Do you, do you see at some point if I were to purchase a, an NFT of the presidential suite of the, of the win that then when the metaverse opens up, I'll always have that room for, for my metaverse parties. I don't even know what it is, but do you uh, see NFTs coming into that? You know, like, I mean, look, to, to me, the NFTs are designed for Vegas because if you think about what the NFTs are, I mean, the, like, you know, if you look at the successful NFTs right now, mm-hmm. um, yes, it's cool art, whatever, but in the end, it's all about access. It's all about special access. It's all about celebrities and special access and I'm cool and you're not. And, you know, Vegas is built on that with the clubs and, the, and everything. Mm. So to me, it just makes sense that at some point, you know, like, you know, the casinos are gonna create their own NFTs that in order to get access to sir or they're going to give their nfts to like their big whale players or whatever it is because in order to have access to something in the real verse not in the metaverse you, you'll need to do something in the metaverse so to me it's just uh, a match made in heaven here uh if um it, you know if they're gonna get into that so very cool so then what's is i think all of our listeners are really intrigued by by the definite potential still within the future of Vegas. What, what are some positions, titles, like placements within careers that, that for maybe someone starting out would be looking for, and then maybe kind of a little bit further in their career. And then once they turn into Marco and retire as a- but, uh, for, for what, um, for what, uh, for what field we're talking about? Let's say, let's go with uh, hospitality first. Yeah. Let's just kind of say that stuff. Oh my God. There is like so much, um, uh... But yeah, usually, so let's say that you want to you wanna work in a hotel casino in Vegas. You usually start from the bottom. Like, you know, you come out of undergrad. Uh, you're probably going to get either a front desk job or a reservation job or a, what they call a loyalty desk in the casino, which are the ones that basically manage your cards and deal all that. And then you're going to move. Like, the cool thing about these casinos, of course, that then you can hop around different type of stuff. But basically, you're going to do all this, like, customer service-facing job first. The more you do, the better. Some of these big casino companies like MGM and Caesars, I know they have, like, management programs and all that where they do rotations and things and they have things with, like, UNLV, um, you know, and all that. Um, and, and, And then after that, you kind of find your path and you can be like dealing with slot machines or dealing with table games or become like a housekeeping supervisor or become like a, you know, in marketing in the hotel, like, you know, it all, it all depends, but usually it's very, this is why um, for MBAs, for example, it's always been very hard to be hired in Vegas without experience because these casinos don't really have jobs that pay what an MBA should be paid at that level because they're not going to make you manage a team because they're like, you're going to be clueless and everybody's going to quit. Um, 
And so, you know, like usually through the undergrad, you start with these like entry level jobs and then, you know, you move up. And if you're good, you can move up pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, now, I warn you that the culture in this casino hotel companies are not great. The turnover is massive. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of very hard work because you're dealing. This is why they say after you work in Vegas, you can work anywhere else because no one else in the world has the volume that you have mm. in Vegas. So, you, can, you know, those are jobs that, you, you, you know, you're better off doing when you're young without a family, like, you know, because you can work nights and days and craziness. But, you know, it, it can also be a lot of fun and you have access to things that other jobs will not give you access and then you can, you can move up. But the first few years can be, uh, can be pretty rough. What about the data analytics side of things? Like do the casino have a couple of jobs of people that just, you know, see what games people play the most and win the most and stuff like that? Can yeah, I yeah, think? no, they, they do. Um, again, humongous turnover in those. They get these analysts and they, 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 they work them to death. Um, mm. Very few end up staying and then moving up. There is just a... But, Again, as a as an entry level job, those are pretty those are pretty good job to get. Um, again, many of those are still using Excel today, right? And so mm -hmm. you have to you have to you know to, to, to do your things. But yes, there are those type there are those type of jobs. There's not a ton of them because of course like you don't need an army of those. But um, the, there are those jobs out there, and there are schools that they these casinos go and recruit and recruit for all that. Is there a job, Marco, that you are happy that you do not have to do anymore within the the hospitality? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, like, look, when I was at the Four Seasons in Chicago, um, I, I was in a rotational program. I had to do housekeeping. I had to scrub toilets. Like, kudos to the people that do those jobs. Those are not fun. Those are not, there's no amount of money you could pay me to, like, but. You know, but I basically treated like doing a year in the military. That's kind of how I, uh, that's kind of how I saw it. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty shocking after college to, you know, very humbling to, uh, to do that. Put it okay. Way. All right. So Marco doesn't want to do, do that anymore. Um, I, I know we're, which we're is why I, I, I went away from operations. Right. After that, I was like, okay, operations done. Like, Ooh, let's do this thing with pricing. But some people just love instead, like staying in operations and all that. Also, I guess being at the front desk and getting screened by customer, it's not the most fun thing ever. Like people can get pretty nasty and it's not your, you know, like, and it's not your fault. So you can find the, you know, the usual Karen that comes in and wants to speak to the manager and you have to deal with that. And yeah. it takes, uh, it takes a lot. Those are not, uh, I'm not saying those are easy or fun jobs. Got it. So that if you were to, you know, be, be talking to some people in the Midwest that are dealing with the cold right now and all that stuff, and we're thinking of going to Vegas, what, what would be like one thing that you would recommend someone visiting do, but not like that stuff you see on like, oh, go see the, you know, the, the Eiffel Tower, like something that you're like, hey, this is, this is a really interesting experience that not everyone knows about. Yeah, what I, what I always give the advice to people is not to stay on the strip. Mm. and actually stay downtown Vegas, which is the oldest uh, part of Vegas. Um, there are some properties there that are not as luxurious, but 
um, they now that they've done a lot of renovation, but they kept the flair and the spirit. For example, there is this property that is the El Cortez, which is the oldest standing hotel here in Vegas. They have rooms from the original wing of Bugsy Siegel from like 1946 wow. or whatever. They've redone all those rooms, but they're like, like, you know, you go in there and you see how it was to like stay in a hotel in the 1940s, you know, like, so, um, and then, you know, downtown has a very vibrant, like um, odd cultural scene and all that. So, um, you know, and then you can always go on the strip and experience that, right? But you, you on the strip, you end up being a little trapped into that. And so I always recommend people like stay, besides that it's cheaper, um, you, can, you can stay downtown and have a different experience and be a little bit more. Now, you, you need to be liking that. If you want like the maximum luxury, you know, like then stay at the wind and do that, right? But um, if you are a little scrappier, there is a lot of fun to be, to be, had, uh, to be had downtown. I like that. I like that. Margo, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one final question and I think it's probably going to be the most important one, but uh, a lot of our listeners and, and the people that, that come out to these, these episodes are, are coming out of college pretty soon, business degrees coming, coming into that stuff with, with truly what I would assume is high hopes, large dreams, all of that stuff. And you're someone who I would say, uh, kind of accomplish those in, in a very successful way. So um, I just want to leave it open-ended with you and say, what, what's a piece of advice you would give to young business people kind of starting out? Um, you know, I, uh, I actually spend quite a bit of time on TikTok, believe it or not. Uh, you know, like it's pretty addictive. And uh, on my feed- What's your TikTok? Hold on, you'll get a bunch uh, of followers yeah, out of this. <laughs> HRH Las Vegas, all my, all my social media is that. Um, and um, I get on my feed all these like motivational speakers, business people that, you know, they're like, oh, here's how you get wealthy. Here's you build the business, you know, like, and they make it very like uh, binary. Like you have to do this. And like, these are the 10 things because I mean, that's what trends and then they sell their videos and whatever. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's more my, uh, you know, the, the story of how I got there, but just like, don't, um, don't try to put yourself in a box. Like just, just, just live your life, do stuff that you have passion for. Like passion is definitely the, the number one thing. Um, and, you know, don't try to fit in a, like if you're around, don't try to fit in a square, like just, just trying to find your path, your voice and your, um, and your passion and, good things will happen, you know, like, it's very hard to, like, use these formulas where you do this, and, you know, like, and, and, and that's gonna happen, or, or whatever, I think those just create a lot of anxiety uh, for, uh, for no reason, so, and, you know, in the end, you, you just got one life, so try to have as much fun as, uh, as you can, because you don't get a, you don't get a do-over, and, you know, like, I, um, I'm turning 46 in, uh, in a couple of weeks, and I'm like, where how like where did that happen right i still feel like i'm 20 uh and so it goes fast and so try to have uh try to have as much fun as you can oh, marco that's a that's a great way to end this whole episode thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with with all of us I, i'm i'm truly grateful so thank you so much for that thank, thank you, you guys it's been a, it's been a pleasure being here 
Perfect. And for all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway on Spotify or iTunes, really anywhere you can find your podcasts. Um, And if you feel so inclined, make sure to give us five-star ratings. I know it seems simple to say, but it does really help us create content like this and bring wonderful people like Marco to, to The Gateway. So thank you again, everyone. Have a great day and stay warm.